This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slade. It's always great to be saving money on that power bill, using technology wisely, and living a more sustainable life. No matter where you may be today, we've got something for you. Casey, we got some guests from around the world today. We sure do. Yeah, Australia and Israel. Uh, I've been to Israel, never been to Australia. Let's welcome Hugh Wynn from from Down Under. Does that bother Australians when we say Down Under uh, as Americans? I mean, does that make you feel like low or something, Hugh? No, we think just, you guys got all your maps upside down. It's a shame, but you could flip them over and you'll see what it really looks like. <laughs> so, Tim, Tim, I've actually been to Australia and they actually they have globes that are flipped upside down from what we're used to. And it is is definitely interesting to see the world that way. It's a very new perspective. Wow. And his colleague in Israel, Eric Selman, uh, I have been to Israel. I have been to Jerusalem. I was a guest Eric of the American Jewish Committee and got to spend over a week uh, in Israel, had just a phenomenal experience. And you get to live there every day. How's that? It's uh, an amazing experience. It's uh, just amazing. The country is about the size of New Jersey and has 35,000 antiquity sites. So wow. there's history around every day. Wow. Hey, I had to read the book Startup Nation before I went on this trip, and I learned a lot about not only innovation in Israel, the uh, the army in Israel, and all those nicknames that people have over there. And so our group of, from Georgia, we all gave each other nicknames in the Israeli style, at least according to the book. Right, so my nickname was Professor. Uh, we had the Beast. Uh, we had we had uh, Landmine. We had a number of people, and you had to approve your own nickname. But Eric, do you have do you have an Israeli nickname? I actually do not. Um, oh my goodness! Maybe I we don't can. I know what my my kids may, but they they haven't told me what theirs <laughs> are. Yeah, maybe we can give you a nickname before the end of the show today. Uh, but Casey, these guys have uh, these guys are smart. They've done a lot of study. Uh, you know, on not only reliability here in the U.S., but just reliability in general. And I know as an as a regulator, uh, reliability is the most important thing to me. Living down south in Georgia. I'm not in California. I'm not in New York. And both of these guys went to school in California. And both of these guys went to school at Harvard, Casey. So they've been on both sides of, of, of our country. And they've been in states that handle their energy both a little bit differently. Well, Tim, I was going to give you a hard time for inviting such august guests on the show here. But uh, now that I know that your nickname is Professor, I've got nothing to, to stand on. <laughs> so, hey, let me ask before we get in, Eric, when you think about your time at Harvard, you know, what was the highlight for you studying uh, or matriculating there at Harvard? Well, I'm not going to say too much positive about it because my wife went to Harvard as an undergrad, and I, I prefer Stanford. But uh, in terms of <laughs> in 
in terms of going to Harvard, what was amazing was just the the students you were with and the professors. And actually, the highlight of my uh, career was uh, when I was in a third year law student. I uh, actually had a baby at the beginning of the year, my oldest son, and uh, I had uh, Justice Elena Kagan at, for administrative law, uh, and she was. Um, she was known for the Socratic method. And what was great was when I went to class with my son, you know, in his, uh, in his carrier, she wouldn't ask me questions. So I knew if I hadn't prepared the material, that was how I could avoid getting asked. But she was, uh, <laughs> having her as a professor was, was definitely a great experience. Eric, you're brilliant. You're brilliant. How about you, Hugh? What was the highlight of attending Harvard for you? I kind of agree with Eric. I think highlight at Harvard was lunchtime when you got a chance to sit down with your classmates and just enjoy what amazing people a lot of them were. Uh, graduation was pretty good. I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, I think Stanford is uh, is the the better better school. You can you can find an institution there that's really focused on pedagogy and uh, wants kids to learn and has the professors uh, engage in many, many hours of, of office, uh, office consultations with students. And uh, it, uh, it really stuck out of my educational career as being a, a top, top-notch institution. Casey, I, I'm well, already surprised today that we've, we've, we've just had Stanford be, you know, be mentioned as being better than Harvard. And that's that's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. I, I mean, I was going to say for uh, uh, the folks over uh, in California at Stanford University that are listening to this, you can send your sponsorship check to. But no. So, Tim, the reason we had these these folks on Eric and and Hugh today is we want to talk a little bit about some of the work that they've done on reliability. And of course, we've had a lot of conversations on this show. We talked uh, a couple of episodes about the blackouts in Texas with the winter storm in February. Uh, we've talked about some of the challenges of integrating renewables in and some of the, the things that can be done to integrate renewables in. And of course, as, as you said at the top of the show, as a regulator, for you, reliability is paramount. And, you know, for me, as someone who wants to see us uh, decarbonize our energy sector, we can't do it in a way that's worse. Right. I mean, if we're trying to sell this as, you know, you're going to have regular blackouts, that's just not going to fly. Right. So really interested to hear what uh, what Eric and, and Hugh have to say about this. And uh, maybe uh, I don't know which of you wants to kind of kick us off here, but um, help us set the stage for our listeners. What uh, what is it that you're looking at and and um, take us through why that matters? Well, um, I guess perhaps let's just get down to the, the basics real quick. Um, I mean, the essence of the, of the modern electricity system is, as you say, you don't have scheduled deliver, delivery of electricity and you don't have scheduled blackouts. You, you walk into a room, you flip the switch and the, and the lights come on. Um, and that's been our expectation and that's been the performance of the system for, for, for decades. Um, We've historically done that with machines, uh, coal burning, steam turbine generators, uh, gas turbines, um, nuclear power plants that uh, figuratively did have on-off switches. And you could, you could command them to operate as needed to, to meet the demand on the system. And if you uh, adequately forecast what demand would be, you could have all those plants uh, ready to run uh, when needed to meet demand. And then the peculiar challenge of, of renewables, of course, is that they're inter intermittent. Uh, they don't have on-off buttons except 
they'll <clears throat> they'll move rather when the wind blows or they'll move rather when the sun sun comes out and that's uh, that's the the key distinguishing feature so now you've got uh, a much more complex problem which is uh, estimating the likely availability of solar panels over the different day, uh, hours of the day and perhaps even more importantly the different months of the year uh, depending on the expected uh, hours of sunlight and, and the quality of the sunlight in terms of how far the sun is off the off the horizon um, and then your even more complicated problem because of its unpredictability you've got to figure out um, when uh, the wind fleet is likely to, 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 to be available. Uh, so those are, are, are major uncertainties that need to be um, overcome through estimation, probabilistic analysis, um, to try to figure out when these resources will be available, how they'll be available to meet, the, uh, whether they'll be available to meet demand. Here, let me jump in. And your letter to me originally, you talked about the critical importance of dispatchable generation. And I want to unpack that a little bit in a minute. But you just made the comment about trying to figure out when the wind's going to be blowing. And I remember going to Germany the first time. I've been over there three different times, you know, looking at, at how the Germans are, are, you know, are doing renewables, biogas, aggregation. Uh, they've, they're very clever people, and they've come up with a lot of cool things. But I went into one organization's headquarters, Hugh, and they had along every wall, they had all 52 weeks of the year of the previous wind that they had across the country. So week one of March, week two of March, week three, because they were trying as best they could to to see if there was some kind of pattern uh, in order, I guess, to make predictions. But this is what you're talking about, right? That that you've, you've got to try to figure out what these things are going to do if you're going to really be able to plan your grid. I think, I think that's right, Tim. Um, but I would say there are two aspects to it. Uh, I'd say that on a kind of on a daily basis, um, you hope you can get the, the sun's um, energy output right, um, basically knowing the season of the year and the time of the day. Uh, the wind obviously is much more difficult, but you can track these, these historical patterns. Um, and you'd like to be able to estimate when the sun is going to go down, when the wind will die out, uh, and when you need to have some kind of backup capacity that you can turn on and off, like a gas turbine generator, to offset the, the lack of, of, of the wind resource or the solar resource until they pick up again. we got just about uh, less than a minute in this particular segment. Eric, uh, in just uh, 30 seconds, let me get you to kind of respond to what Hugh's saying here as we talk about these wind maps. Well, I mean, when it comes to wind, really wind and solar, uh, solar is more predictable, but the truth is neither are fully predictable. And I think that's really what this comes down to. You can have all of these patterns. Wind, it's much less predictable because the wind can die down. There's really no, uh, there's no overriding pattern that you can control. But solar, even there you have clouds. So it's, it's never fully predictable. Yeah, when we come back, Hugh from down under, and Eric from Israel will be back with Casey and me as we talk about this possible looming crisis, certainly in California and other places, hopefully not here in Georgia. Stick around. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. 
Energy Matters would like to thank GasSouth for its support of the show. GasSouth has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. GasSouth, the difference is good. GasSouth believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit. And the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. GasSouth. The difference is good. Logan Booker, producer of Energy Matters, here for Green Power EMC. From the suburbs to rural farming communities, Georgia is enjoying the benefits of a more sustainable future through the power of solar energy. Available from 38 of Georgia's member-owned electric membership cooperatives, or EMCs, these not-for-profit utilities are harnessing the sun's energy to bring clean, renewable, and affordable electricity to 4.2 million Georgians. For more information, visit www.greenpoweremc.com or contact your local EMC. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AMLAW 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. Hey, this is Tim Eccles back with KC Boyce in Decatur, Georgia. KC, we've got a power-packed group today. Hugh from Down Under in Australia, Eric uh, from Israel, and we're talking, Casey, about something near and dear to my heart, and that is reliability. And uh, Casey, as we get into this, why don't you define dispatchable generation for the audience? Sure. So, I, I mean, Hughes talked a little bit about it uh, in the first segment, but basically it's this idea that you can control the amount of generation, right? So that someone in a control room in a utility or in a system operator somewhere can say, hey, I want this much power on the grid at this time, and it responds accordingly. Uh, and, and, you know, that's in contrast to something like uh, wind or solar, which, as we were talking about in the previous segment, is intermittent in nature, right? Uh, as Eric said, there's clouds or the wind stops blowing. And you know, my understanding is that those forecasts have gotten quite a bit better over the last couple of years. But Hugh, you had said that there were two things that really we need to be thinking about. One is just kind of the day-to-day or hour-to-hour reliability. What's the other thing? Well, the, the other thing is just predictable um, shortages in renewable energy on the system uh, that will result in a big gap uh, for a long period of time between prevailing demand on the grid and the available wind and solar energy to, to serve it. Um, and one of, the, uh, uh, one of the experiences that's still sharp in my mind about attending Stanford was a, was a week of rainy weather in California uh, when I don't think the sun came out for about five days in a row. And it was, it was not only wet, but it was also windless. And uh, when we've gone back through the historical data, we find that that type of pattern often repeats in the fall in California. And you can have a week of days when the sun quality is very, very poor due to the overcast uh, skies and the wind is non-existent. And then trying to meet demand on those days is virtually impossible because demand will be 
twice the level of available renewable energy on this on the grid and you need to back it up with something that's not contingent on wind or uh, or sun. So, Eric, you look like you had something to say here, but I, I actually want to uh, uh, ask a, a question of you, Hugh. But, Eric, I'll let you go first, and then I want to respond to what Hugh just said. Well, I just had a follow-up. And the real important part of what Hugh is saying is it, when you think about moving forward with uh, clean energy, uh, people talk about wind, solar, and batteries. And what Hugh said is really important for for the ability to rely on batteries because you have to build so many batteries, you have to store so, and you have to overbuild this, the wind and the solar so much if you want to be able to overcome those, you know, worst case periods where, you know, the sun doesn't shine for five days or the wind doesn't blow for five days and you still have to have enough power to meet demand. And so this is where dispatchable uh, capacity becomes so important. You can't just rely on batteries plus wind plus solar. You need something, something else. So just to, to um, kind of get into this a little bit further and provide a little bit more context, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen um, talking to large scale utility solar developers is that storage is almost a given these days um, when they're building these projects. And looking at uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, the, uh, about a third of the solar projects that are in the interconnection queues to be connected to the grid across the uh, U.S. have storage coupled with with solar. And to, to your point, though, you if you've got that period of five days or so that, you know, you've got rain, you've got clouds, the the panels aren't producing, it's hard to charge up the batteries with nothing, right? Um, but I, I am curious, and, and this is kind of where I wanted to come back to what you were saying, Hugh, is, okay, so if, if the available renewables are half of what you need to meet the load, what people are, are demanding, why don't you just build twice as many renewables? <laughs> well... That's, uh, that's exactly what you would have to do. You'd have to overbuild the renewable fleet. Um, the cost of bridging these deficit days, these uh, five days of low solar quality, no wind, um, is extremely high, however, for a couple of reasons. One, the uh, output of the wind and solar energy, the, the quality of wind and solar energy during those days is so low that the overbuild of the fleet would have to be enormous. This isn't a sunny summer day when you can capture tremendous amounts of solar energy. It's not a windy fall day when you can capture tremendous amounts of wind. Uh, these are days by definition when those resources aren't there. And the, the consequence of that is that the, the amount of capacity you have to add to, to take advantage of those limited resources is huge. So that's very, very expensive. So that's one point, I think. Second point I would make simply is that Overcoming that with batteries is extremely expensive. Our batteries today have you know, duration of discharge of two to four hours. If we're talking about periods when you've got about five days of inadequate capacity, uh, inadequate renewable generation, and there's half the load on the system that needs to be supplied with batteries, you're going to have to buy batteries equivalent to half the demand in California, not for two hours, not for four hours, but possibly 48 72 hours at a clip. And that means that you're you're basically building arrays of batteries that are as big as half demand for every four hour period across that week. And that gives you a feel for just how expensive that becomes. We actually did this analysis. Yeah, we did this analysis. We actually ran an hourly analysis taking one year's actual data in California for solar, wind and demand. And we found that to hit 100% renewables in every hour, 
you needed, now this is a market with about 50 gigawatts of peak demand, 50,000 50, uh, megawatts of peak demand at its highest. And you needed 250 gigawatts of solar and 170 gigawatts of batteries, 15 gigawatts of wind to meet 50 gigawatts of peak demand and to meet the energy needs in every hour of the year. So you were overbuilding solar by five times and batteries by three times the peak demand on the system. And so it's a massive overbuild and a massive cost to meet everything with, uh, with these resources. You know, I have, to, I have to think that the average person who's out here maybe getting emails from various groups, you know, pushing for 100% renewable energy, that they have no clue of the, you know, of the overbill that would be required to accomplish this. It doesn't seem logical to me. I, you know, the example I have, is, I have is that we're contorting ourselves into some kind of pretzel in order to be able to say that we're doing it. And our, our financial stewardship to me in doing this overbuild, it seems wasteful. I don't know. Am I wrong, Eric? We completely agree. We believe you can get to clean energy. But you have to have a broader view of what that is. Um, you have to think about keeping dispatchable resources. Keep gas power plants around longer until you can come up with some new technologies. Carbon capture and sequestration as add-ons to gas plants, which can remove 90, they're working on 95% uh, of the carbon. Hydrogen, you know, using this excess renewable power in the future to do hydrogen. But it's going to take 10, 20 years to make those economic. And so it's really a matter of not throwing out all of the existing generation, not rushing too quickly, and making sure you have an all-of-the-above policy that allows for those and maybe even advanced nuclear. But you need other technologies that are dispatchable that you can control that can fill in these gaps. Hugh and Eric, I know you guys would love to come to Georgia as we tee up our integrated resource plan next year. And best of luck in doing that. As witnesses, there may be a possibility for you doing that. But one of the things that we're going to be talking about is whether to close a substantial coal unit north of Atlanta uh, that has become uneconomic or to go ahead and spend the money to get it back where it needs to be. And then, of course, to run it for another 20 or 25 or 30 years. And there's going to be a lot of pressure from the union to do that, and then a lot of pressure from environmental groups, no, to go ahead and close it and replace it with solar plus batteries. Uh, so given that given that the, the coal is dispatchable and the solar plus batteries, I guess, is somewhat dispatchable, I mean, what would you advise on something like that? I'd have to look at the economics, but I, I was going to say that gas, you know, you could repower with gas and use it as a peaker. And then fill in the energy with solar and wind and use this to back up. We're not saying don't use renewable energy. Uh, in my mind, what makes sense, though, is keeping around dispatchable as backup capacity. They would run less. So it may not make sense to completely re make, you know, bring the, the coal up to standards. Uh, that might cost too much. Uh, plus, the emissions are much higher, but maybe repowering it as gas or building a replacement with a gas turbine might be an option. Hugh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Coal, coal is dispatchable, but it's dispatchable with about 12 hours of foresight so you can heat up the boilers and get the head of steam you need to run the turbines. Uh, what you really need in an increasingly renewable system 
um, is short-term uh, response capability, and the gas plants are the ones that have that. Uh, they can, you know, they can basically ramp up in, in 15 minutes, and you can you can keep them spinning if need be, so they can ramp up in seconds. Um, I think the uh, the, you know, the use of the site uh, is not a problem. You should be able to, you know, basically build the the um, gas plant there, um, and it would provide you a, a lower emission, quicker response solution to the to the to the challenge you face. Well, Casey, we're going to have. Uh, we're going to have some big decisions ahead of us. I, I really think we need to bring Hugh and Eric back one more segment here uh, because I, I just I just have more questions for them. I feel like there's there's a lot that we haven't been able to get to. I mean, Casey, you've seen these IRPs not only in Georgia and other places, but it does give us a mechanism to thoroughly vet uh, the best of what might be ahead and also a chance to look back behind and see mistakes that we've made. Yeah, let's bring them back and let's keep talking about challenges and solutions as we transition to more renewables. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Stick around. We're going to bring Hugh Wynn back from Down Under and Eric Selman back from Israel. And we're going to continue to talk about dispatchable generation and reliability. So important. Stick around. We'll be right back. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. Gerd and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit, and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by BMW Auto Sales. With gas prices hitting over $3 for the first time since 2014, isn't it time you consider a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid from BMVW Auto Sales? These plug-in hybrids will go 50 miles on electric charge, saving you precious money and time. Skip the line at the gas pumps and charge in your garage. See more at ev-hybrid.com. That's ev-hybrid.com. Hey, Tim Eccles back. One more segment with Hugh Wynn and Eric Selman. Casey, uh, these guys have done a lot of study. And, you know, for a person like me, Casey, an English major, right, with a couple of masters, I mean, I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go to Harvard. I was out there at the Harvard on the Oconee, we call it, the University (laughs) of Georgia. And I tell you guys, we know football. And I'm not talking about British football here. I'm talking about American football, halfback university, we call call our school. But Casey – I rely on experts to help me with analysis and thinking through these guys these guys are trained they've studied they you know they they've done the research and and that's important so let me jump in guys and just ask you I mean we've got about 8% renewables on our grid California has a lot more Germany has a lot more how do you know when you've reached 
a point of vanishing returns uh, and that you need to either slow down or stop putting renewables on the grid. Let me start with Eric and then we'll go to Hugh. Well, we've we've actually looked at this in a couple of regions, again, doing an, an hourly analysis of demand versus solar, wind, battery resources. And what we found is that um, in the regions we looked at, you could get up to 70% renewables without a really large inc- without significant increases in the in the overall wholesale price of power um, that's assuming though that you're keeping existing dispatchable resources up and running to fill in the gaps you need them for capacity still so Tim it sounds like you've got some headroom to go here you just got to keep the spare car in the garage is that right yeah it sounds like keeping the plants available to be used in an emergency like they had in Texas, like they have on a regular basis in the summer in California, is important. I think there's a temptation to want to just close these plants. But what you guys are saying, Hugh, is no, no, keep them operational. Use them you know, when you have to. Of course, it costs money to do that, but, um, but it's far better than having a brownout or a blackout. Right, Hugh? Yeah, exactly. I think the, 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 the what we're trying to do is to distinguish between energy, uh, which we think can be supplied reliable, or rather uh, economically from wind and solar resources and capacity, the ability to, to dispatch that energy onto the grid when you need it. And that has to come from some kind of uh, uh, fossil fuel, nuclear, hydroelectric facility with a reservoir, that type of plant. So you want to keep those types of plants available. If at all possible, you want them to be renewable, uh, like hydro, non-emitting, like nuclear. If they're fossil, ideally, they would be uh, equipped with carbon capture or perhaps burning a non-emitting fuel like hydrogen. But that distinguishing quality of being able to supply power to the grid when required that's what you want to need that's what you want to have available so one of the things i'm really curious to get your take on here is something that we've talked about on the show before and and before i ask the question let me just set it up this way um which is you know when we look at um how the grid historically has been operated it's hugh as as you mentioned you know kind of in an earlier uh segment here where grid operators bring power plants online uh based on load forecasts right they figure out how much electricity people are going to be using they ramp up the power plants make sure that that generation is available um And one of the things that we've talked about on the show before, both with California and with Texas, is that they don't really have much in the way of a demand response market, which it's a horrible name, right? Demand response. Um, But kind of the idea is flexible load on the consumer side. So to to make this real for for our listeners, that could be things like having a smart thermostat where, um, you know, your utility might be able to offset the temperature during peak demand periods. Um, You know, Tim and I both drive electric cars. Uh, I certainly want to have a full charge when I wake up in the morning, but I don't really care when that happens overnight. So if someone wanted to manage it to you know, offset loads, that's fine. And in the discussion so far uh, and in, in your paper, you've spoken uh, mostly about the generation side, the grid side. And I'm curious how you see, if you see, demand flexibility playing into solving this issue that you've highlighted around reliability with intermittent renewables. I'll let, I'll let Eric answer that because he's thought more about it than I have. But I want to make one quick point, which is that I think you need to distinguish in demand response, as with batteries, between short duration um, 
reduction in demand, or in the case of batteries, short duration discharge of energy to the grid, and what may be required during a week of poor solar resource and, and no, no, no sure. wind. Um, you're not going to ask people to defer doing their laundry for a week, right? You might ask them to defer for about eight hours. So take it My, away, Eric. Well, before you do that, so, uh, Hugh, I think my son might be happy by deferring laundry by a week. Um, so you might get a win with him. <laughs> yeah, he took his bath yesterday, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But when we think about demand response, Hugh is correct. It's short-term versus long-term. And most of the demand response we think about is short-term. So it's really similar uh, to a battery in terms of its value as a resource. Um, batteries generally are also shorter-term resources. And so when we think about this, we think they're actually very important and they can do a lot to reduce the cost of achieving higher levels of renewables. They can do a lot to facilitate it, but you still have to have that backbone of capacity to step in when other things fail. We're, you know, we're not saying that batteries and demand response aren't valuable resources. They're actually really useful tools and regulators and utilities should be increasing the amount that they use them because they have a role to play. But you have to make sure that underlying that, and what we, I guess what we're seeing missing in the discussion is that everyone's focusing on these wonderful clean resources, including demand response, which is great because it does bring the demand, you know, a real market needs demand and supply. It's not just about supply. But when we're, when we're thinking about how we move going forward as in policy and, and designing the system, it's forgotten that you still have to have the, you still have to have the backup systems that really ensure reliability. And that's really what we're trying to, fo that's why we're focusing on the generation rather than demand response and batteries, because you know, those are there, but you can't just rely on them. And I think the other parts are being forgotten. Well, and, and I think the point that you guys are making here is is one that's probably worth emphasizing, right? Is that, you know, there's a distinction between that short term, right? How do you balance on real in real time supply and demand where things like batteries or demand response can have a very real role? And then, you know, the situation, Hugh, that, that you shared in an earlier segment around, okay, it's five days of it's not windy and it's not uh, sunny and, you know, what are you going to do? Um, does transmission play a role in, in the solution here? Um, you know, looking at, at Texas and the fact that they've got their own grid and couldn't bring in power over the border, like, does that help address some of these seasonal issues as well? I would say they can help. But if everyone is having the same, for example, the, fr the freeze in February, that hit a very large portion of the country. The heat wave right now occurring in the West that's a very large portion of the country. It's hundreds and hundreds of miles. So you have to transmit the power quite far for that to be useful. And so when you're, the part of the problem is when we see large, uh, large uh, weather events, then the transmission is not as useful. You know, Casey, Hugh, Eric, I have to think that some of these states have got themselves into a pickle, right? They've, they've demonized fossil fuel and in order to accelerate the adoption of renewables. So they've made natural gas the new coal. Everybody hates coal already uh, out there. So now they've made natural gas into, you know, the, the, the stepchild, you know, uh, of coal. They don't like nuclear energy either. They hate burning anything biomass. How do they walk that back 
and then allow themselves to keep these gas plants in reserve if they've told people, their constituents, the membership of their environmental organizations, uh, their whole state, that fossil fuel is from the pit of hell. I think what you might find, Tim, is that their constituents are going to tell them, um, because as Eric, Eric pointed out, when you, when you plot the system cost of supplying electricity at levels of renewable and penetration that exceed, say, 70% and try to move it up to 80%, move it up to 90%, you're increasing people's bills by a factor of 50%, 100%, 150% to make those extra yards. Uh, and that's where I think the political payback is going to, is going to make a, a change in plan inevitable. Well, and, and Tim, it strikes me that this is about outcome rather than orthodoxy, right? So, I mean, if you're looking at things that you're balancing, and I'll just name a couple of things that aren't necessarily comprehensive, right? But there's reliability. We need to keep the lights on. Like, people aren't going to stand for a solution that doesn't do that. There's the cost, like you just pointed out, right? People aren't going to stand for doubling their electric bills. There's the fact that we've got to stop emitting carbon into the climate. It's a cause behind this heat wave. It's a cause behind uh, the winter storm in Texas. Um, so there's some realities there that we've got to deal with. And so it's not necessarily about, you know, renewables good, everything else bad. It's about balancing things as it relates to those outcomes that we're trying to see with the energy system. And and I, I mean, I'm guessing you're probably hearing this from your constituents as an elected official, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but but Casey, we got to keep them over one more. I cannot let them oh. go yet. I cannot. <laughs> I mean, it, it's very late and very early there. I just got to have them one more segment to finish this off because I've got to ask them about nuclear energy. I've got to I've got to ask them uh -oh. about. I've got to ask them about the German aggregation plan that Germany's doing. I just have more questions. So hey, stick around as I get my education from these two Stanford and Harvard trained guys. We got to get them to Georgia. They know a lot. We're learning a lot here. We're going to give you a continuing education credit just for tuning in today. I'm Tim Eccles. We'll be right back with Hugh Wynn from Down Under and Eric Selman from Israel. Stick around. You better run. You better take cover. Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure you receive the highest quality solar energy system in the industry. They're proud to work with you before, during, and after the install, blending customer demand, system capability, and expertise to provide the best service possible. Contact them today at 770-485-7438 or creativesolarusa.com. Tim Eccles here for Marlin Gas Services. Marlin doesn't sell gasoline, propane, or even natural gas, but they do solve problems and difficult ones when traditional pipelines are shut down. Remember that contractor that pierced the pipe at the bottom of the Savannah River, terminating gas service to all of Hutchinson Island? Marlin was there. They trucked highly compressed gas over to the island, restoring gas service until the repair could be made. See more at MarlinGas.com. That's MarlinGas.com.
This segment of Energy Matters is sponsored by Hall Booth Smith. This law firm works with over 88 Fortune 500 companies, and they have offices from Brunswick to Athens, Tifton to Columbus, and of course, Atlanta. We'd like to thank Hall Booth Smith for the great work they do with school boards, hospitals, cities, and counties all over our state. See more at hallboothsmith.com. Hey, we're back for one final segment with Hugh Wynn and Eric Selman. Casey, I'm learning a lot. What can I say, Casey? These guys are, they're really singing the song that I love to sing, and that is reliability, huh? Well, this has been a fun conversation. I mean, I, I'm not as uh, geeked up on reliability as you are, but uh, but hey, you know, it's, it's still entertaining and uh, very informative. It's been great to have Eric and uh, Hugh on the show. You know, what's stunning to me is that going into the conversation, I'm going, okay, some more Harvard people, okay, more the same, all that Northeastern stuff, but that is not what we're getting here. We are getting, we are getting some very sound advice about keeping this grid operational. And Casey, when people's power goes out, when a city's wastewater treatment system goes down or their water supply goes down, people are in crisis. Texas, that situation in Texas was devastating to a lot of people, right? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And not only, you know, was it devastating for them, um, lots of costs. There were, you know, people who died or had serious health issues as a result of it. Um, you know, people are pretty angry about it, too. Um, that's not a situation in the U.S. in the 21st century that uh, that really anyone should be in. So let me go to you, Eric. You're in Israel and I've been there and I, I really appreciate all the innovation that has come and is coming out of Israel would Israelis stand for brownouts, blackouts, uh, you know, the prime minister, you know, or whoever, you know, getting on Twitter at three o'clock and asking people to turn off their power? Is that something that Israelis would would accept or is that something they would push back against? They push back. But then again, We've gone through a bit worse recently, so they they can they can actually tolerate quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and so how about down under, Hugh? I mean, Australians, you guys are outdoorsy people, right? I, I don't want to try to characterize Australians, get myself in trouble here. D- would Australians stand for uh, an unreliable grid? Well, I think, frankly, at least in the rural parts of Australia, like where I am now, uh, the uh, assumption that everything is going to be laid on for you is going to work uh, in, in an uninterrupted way is, is not as widely shared as it is in the States. Uh, people are a little bit more self-reliant and uh, I think that, uh, you know, the use of backup generators at home and stuff like that is a little bit more widespread. We get our blackouts. Yeah, so I, I guess I guess if you live in the Caribbean and you come to expect certain things, if you live down under, you come to expect certain things like you just described, Hugh. Eric, you've got all these other issues that are more pressing in Israel, so you kind of put it all into perspective. But Casey, in the state that we live in, in Georgia, where I serve as a statewide elected official, I think I would lose my job if we had regular rolling brownouts during the summer. I just don't think people would tolerate. They're not used to it. They are used to a very high-quality grid, and we spoil them. And and going back, to me, is not, not an option. Yeah, look, you know, I, I run, as, as regular listeners know, a large uh, study that looks at utilities experience, or customers' experience with their utilities, I should say. And when we talk to our clients who are energy utilities about sort of the philosophy behind it, 
reliability is at the base of the pyramid. Um, and we talk about it being foundational, that as a utility, if you don't get the very basics right, keeping the lights on or keeping the gas flowing, um, you know, getting the bills right, taking care of customers when they have a problem, those basic things, you really can't do anything else. Customers aren't going to trust you. And we've seen examples of that out in California. Uh, we've seen examples of that up in the Northeast and Maine. They've had some big problems with reliability and their utilities are struggling in customer perception. So, you know, if you're talking about wanting to get customers to adopt smart thermostats or electric cars or whatever, you've got to get the basics right. I'd like to make a point around that, if that's okay, Tim. I just think that the getting the basics right is really what did not happen in Texas. It, the, the, the coldest hour of that winter storm occurred at night. Nobody was expecting the solar power to be available at night. The, the expected availability of, of wind uh, was extremely low, and it got even lower. But the real problem in Texas was not the unavailability of renewables. The real problem in Texas was the unavailability of the dispatchable power plants. Uh, and that happened because they were not winterized and you had frozen pipes uh, at, uh, at a nuclear plant that put it offline. You had frozen um, coal man handling equipment at coal plants and threw them offline. Um, you had frozen pipes at, at combined cycle gas turbine plants, threw them offline. So an issue there was the availability of the dispatchable plants that was not uh, uh, up to par during the, the extreme winter weather. The second problem, and this is, this is key, is that the bulk of the dispatchable capacity in Texas, as you know, is gas. Uh, and the gas system was subject to a couple of problems. One was gas being diverted for heating in commercial and residential buildings, so that there was lower, lower um, pressure uh, on the pipes and therefore inadequate gas supply to start up uh, the gas plants as they were required. And then secondly, um, the supply of gas from the, from the gas fields was diminished because those weren't winterized either. Um, so this widespread unavailability of gas was, was really a crippling element and what really precipitated the long duration outage that we saw. You know, you mentioned uh, the nuclear plants, uh, the one plant that, that tripped for a little while. Let, let me ask both of you about nuclear energy. There's a lot of buzz around advanced nuclear technology. We're building plant Vogel units three and four here. They are in hot functional testing. They are, or unit three is, as of this recording uh, right now, it is at full temperature and full pressure. We haven't put the fuel in there yet, but it, you know, so we, the end is in sight for us, but we've got other technologies coming along that's really more efficient. You can daisy chain the reactors together, so to speak. There's less water used. There's less possibility for an accident. Do you see advanced nuclear technology having a significant place in Europe and the U.S., not just in Asia? I would like to think that that would be the case. Um, I think, you know, Georgia was... You know, very uh, forward-thinking in uh, supporting Vogel, uh, but I think future technologies for nuclear would be better off being smaller, more modular, because you know, look at the risk that comes with these large engineering projects. So clearly, I'd like to think that we see them, but we'll have to definitely see uh, commercialization of the smaller, uh, the smaller plants that you know where you don't have to bet a utility on you know, the construction. Now, that's in the U.S. I'm not sure we see it as much in Europe, uh, or at least 
many countries in Europe, I think we are, we'll, it'll be a lot harder to sell. We see it, we may see it in the US if it's supported by policy, um, but we'll have to see what happens with the next few years. How about you, Hugh? Do you see a place for advanced nuclear technology in in the West, not just the East? Yeah, I certainly do. I think that um, uh, to make a point that Eric said earlier, the the issue here is not to transition to renewable energy. The issue here is to render our energy non-emitting and therefore, you know, not aggravating the, the climate change that we face already. Uh, we can we can only go so far with intermittent renewable resources. We need dispatchable, non-emitting resources like nuclear, um, fossil plants equipped with carbon capture and sequestration, uh, pumped pumped hydro storage, and and the like. So I think it's wrong to to exclude those options. I think it's very important that we develop technologies that can be safely and economically adopted uh, in the in the in, in nuclear generation. Let me uh, let me go ahead before we get to the end of our broadcast and and have you tell folks how they can reach out to you and find uh, find your research and read it for themselves. Eric, how, how can folks find you out there on the internet? Our research is on our website, www.ssrllc.com. And then each of us can be reached, you know, reach out to each of us individually. Uh, my email address is eselman, that's E-S-E-L-M-O-N, at ssrllc.com and uh hughes is h win h w y n n e at ssrllc.com casey this conversation about dispatchable resources is something i am very interested in continuing to educate the citizens of our state uh you know the ratepayers of uh, of georgia power about and the the value that dispatchable resources have I mean, we didn't really get into the conversation about the German aggregation system and how the Germans are using all these different renewable sites, about six and a half million of them the last time I was there, and they are trying to manage these in such a way that they are using exactly what they need and selling what they don't need so that they can provide additional revenue. Uh, so aggregation, just uh, a quick word, Hugh, on that, and then Eric, if we have time. Hugh? Eric, do you want to, you want to take this one, Eric? Sure. The problem with that, aggregation is a good idea, and aggregation works when you have lots of different uh, generators. Um, the problem is you need enough demand to sell to, and that's where we're concerned is when you you start getting to those higher levels of renewables, you have a lot of excess power, but nobody there to buy it. And so what are you doing with the power then? Aggregation helps and it can you can help manage things, but it still doesn't solve the problem. Well, Casey, we're at the end of our, our time and I really hate to go, but we have to because our show's uh, over. These guys have been fantastic. Hugh Wynn from Down Under, Eric Selman from Israel. Gentlemen, I really hope that we can get you uh, on the witness stand in Georgia during our IRP. I think the message that you have about dispatchable resources and reliability is something I would love to hear more of. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. Thank, Thank you, you, Tim. Casey, thanks for all you do. Great having you as a co-host. Hey, everybody, I appreciate you listening to Energy Matters. Catch every episode at WGAUradio.com or anywhere that you get your podcast by searching for Energy Matters with Commissioner Eccles. I'm Tim Eccles. Have a great day, everyone.
Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your one, two, or five dollar checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. The electric car revolution is coming, and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low-speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six-passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to GemCarService.com. That's G-E-M, CarService.com. Um...